This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, the more news that we hear out of Ukraine, the sadder it gets, not only for the Ukrainian people, but for the Russian people and even for Americans. I mean, for starters, you see these images of people forced to leave their homes, people being killed, people dying, people injured, and you can't help but have your heart bleed for these folks. Then you look at the potential for the hurt to the American economy with things like record high gas prices, and you can't help but shake your head in frustration. Then you think to yourself, well, if this keeps escalating, we could be looking very sincerely at the prospect of a new world war. There seems to be a lot of frustration, a lot of hand-wringing, and not necessarily a lot of agreement, except on one thing. The one thing that policymakers on both sides of the aisle seem to agree on, and media outlets on the left and on the right seem to agree on, is that Vladimir Putin is a Hitlerian-style madman bent on uh, rebuilding the Soviet Union and maybe even more, and that this is all his fault. Anybody that dares even question that narrative is quickly labeled as a stooge for the Kremlin, shouted down, easily dismissed, uh, banished from conventional media outlets, at least most of them, and uh, suppressed from uh, new media and social media. Well, we happen to have one of those Kremlin stooges with us this morning. I am very, very pleased to welcome Aaron Mate. He's a Canadian journalist, a reporter for the Gray Zone, and a contributor to Real Clear Investigations. He's also a former producer of Democracy Now!, which is sort of the go-to left-of-center media program. It's a multimedia program, radio, television, and a whole lot more. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, thanks for having me. Aaron, one of the things that I really like about you is that you've done something to earn the ire of everybody, people on the left, people on the right. And uh, I think a big part of that was your coverage and your commentary during the Russiagate investigation, what a lot of folks call the Russiagate hoax, where, you know, you upset a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people on the left because you weren't necessarily willing to buy into this narrative that Donald Trump was somehow a Russian agent. And you consistently upset people on the right with your sort of natural bent towards progressivism. Why did you uh, question the conventional narrative on Russiagate and Russian collusion and uh, Donald Trump being a Russian narrative? Why not march in lockstep with so many on the left who felt that was the case? Well, there's two reasons. The first is professional and the second is political. When it comes to professional reasons. I'm a journalist. And so the job of a journalist is to follow the facts, no matter what the partisan line on those facts is. And in the case of Russiagate, it was so obvious when I looked at the facts, it was a scam. This idea that Trump is a Russian agent and his, his campaign engaged in this broad conspiracy with Russia, it was a joke. And if you read the actual evidence that came out, the court filings from Mueller, the many disclosures that we got throughout that multi-year saga. It was a scam. There was nothing there. And it was only a deception on the part of people inside the intelligence community and people inside the media that kept it going. And so me taking journalism seriously required me to follow the facts. And that's what I did. And second of all, from a partisan perspective, look, I am a left-winger and I I take left-wing politics seriously. And I thought even from a partisan perspective, first of all, it was a massive gift to Donald Trump to turn his opposition 
into a deranged Russia conspiracy cult, where literally the way to resist Trump for over two years was to believe that he was a Russian agent and to sit back for Robert Mueller to prove it. Well, we all know how that turned out. When Robert Mueller came before Congress, he didn't even know the details of his own investigation, and his investigation found absolutely nothing when it came to a Trump-Russia conspiracy. So uh, that was a big gift to Trump, even from a political perspective. Not that that was my guiding motive, but to the extent that I was guided by by politics, that was a part of it. And second of all, and and this speaks to the current moment that we're in now, Russiagate to me was normalizing this incredibly dangerous mentality where Trump, when he would talk about having diplomacy with Russia and when he was skeptical of NATO, where all of that was deemed to be traitorous, that somehow he was betraying his country by simply calling for better relations with Russia, which is the world's other top nuclear power. And so look where we are now. Now we're in the, one of the most dangerous moments that this world has seen since the end of the Second World War in Ukraine, in large part because for the last five-plus years, diplomacy with Russia has been criminalized and the way to sort of uh, show your patriotism and your, quote-unquote, uh, resistance to Trump has been to encourage militarism with Russia, which to me is just insanity. And it's played a major part in leading to this moment mm-hmm. that we're in right now with Ukraine and Russia. One of the things that uh, Bill Barr, the former Trump attorney general who's now uh, not no longer in Trump's good graces because of some of the things that he says in his book. One of the things Bill Barr said yesterday was that uh, the the Russia hoax actually tied Donald Trump's hands in dealing with Putin and Russia. Do you share that characterization? He's absolutely right. And you can find countless examples of it. During the period that Democrats like Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi were screaming about this fictitious Trump-Russia conspiracy plot, and speculating that Trump was being compromised by uh, blackmail from Putin, whether it's the P-tape or other forms of compromise. During that period, Trump, Trump's administration was implementing a series of very hawkish policies towards Russia. He tore up uh, multiple arms control deals that were reached during the Cold War, including the INF Treaty. Uh, he tried to kill the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. He increased weapon sales to Ukraine something that Obama refused to do because Obama was worried about weapons, U.S. weapons getting to the arms of uh, far-right militants inside Ukraine and further inflaming the proxy war between uh, the U.S. and Russia inside Ukraine with the Donbass war that's been going on for eight years. And Trump did all that after he was being accused constantly of being a Russian agent. I think that if Trump hadn't faced these constant claims that he was compromised by Russia, I think his Russia policy would have been very different. But when he came into office, he was constantly being called a traitor, and he was facing constant pressure on him from the bipartisan foreign policy establishment to, for example, send more weapons to Ukraine. So in the face of that, I think he caved. And had that not happened, I'm pretty confident, or at least it's pretty plausible to speculate, that he would have actually implemented the policies that he ran on, Mm. which actually was cooperation with Russia. But Russiagate criminalized all of that. And so Bill Barr is, is exactly right. 
to point that out. Yeah, no, I, I was a, a Trump voter, and that was one of my great disappointments with President Trump as he ran uh, in 2016 as someone who wanted detente with Russia. And then uh, whenever there was an opportunity to go in the opposite direction, he he did just that. Do, do you hold out any hope for the, um, the, the Durham investigation, for holding some folks accountable for the, the Russiagate hoax? I do. And if Durham is allowed to do his job, I really think this is one of the most important investigations that we've had in decades. Think about what a scam this was. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, and again, I'm not a Donald Trump fan. I didn't vote for him. I don't support his agenda. But this was a case where the U.S. intelligence community and the Justice Department was weaponized to box in an elected president by accusing him of being a traitor to the Kremlin, the U.S.'s top geopolitical foe. And the Justice Department and the FBI kept this investigation going for more than two years, even though they knew from the start there was nothing there, even though they knew that so much of this was fueled by a contractor that was paid for by Trump's political opponent, the Steele dossier, which is literally paid for by the Clinton campaign. So this is just from the point of view of uh, restoring basic democratic norms. For John Durham to investigate this is paramount, and so far he's uncovered some bad actors like Michael Sussman, who is an attorney for a Clinton campaign who's been indicted for lying to the FBI while trying to promote a fake Trump-Russia story about Alpha Bank and the server. And so absolutely, I, I think that Durham's investigation is, is incredibly important. The question is, will he be allowed to make his findings public? And given that they are so embarrassing, I think, for Democrats— we shouldn't be so sure of that. But that's why we should be uh, insisting that what Durham, whatever he finds, just like Democrats were saying back when Mueller was on the case, that Durham should be able to make his findings public in full. Uh, the reason I wanted to go back is because I really do think all that stuff is so relevant to the situation that we find ourselves in now uh, with the Russia and Ukraine situation. One of the other areas that I find relevant is NATO's um, expansion and continuing expansion right up until Russia's borders and basically, if not prodding, at least welcoming Ukraine into into NATO in the uh, long run, along with other uh, countries in the Russian sphere of influence. Now, when I've mentioned this, the role of NATO expansion in fomenting Russian aggression on the air, I am uh, quickly uh, labeled as Moscow Morano. Some people have said I'm a, a Putin apologist. And um, I, and do you think, I'm curious, that it's wrong to mention not only the role of NATO expansion, but America's role in bringing about this whole this Russian invasion, including um, fomenting a, a coup of a democratically elected president in Ukraine eight years ago? You know, Frank, what's incredible is that the position you espouse of just questioning the the wisdom of expanding a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders via Ukraine, that was once a mainstream position. Mm. It was once espoused by people like George Keenan, who was one of the most eminent, accomplished U.S. diplomats ever. Uh, he warned in the late 1990s when NATO was expanding that this was going to be a disaster, that it would provoke Russia and that it would be the worst U.S. foreign policy decision since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Henry Kissinger has also espoused that view. 
Robert McNamara, many people of that generation were very, very concerned of the dangers of expanding NATO. Now you try to find somebody inside Washington who will be willing to say that. If they do, they'll be chased out of town. So things have really changed in the last uh, 20 years or so. And because it's so crazy, uh, to, uh, so, so crazy a policy to expand a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders, the only way you can defend it is by calling anyone who criticizes it a Russian agent so, or a Russian apologist. So with George Keenan, a Russian apologist, when he questioned it in 1997, or with Robert McNamara, or many other prominent people inside the foreign policy community who called this out. Are they Russian agents? Of course not. But it's just the way things have gone, the policy has gone so militaristic that the only way to handle criticism is just to call people names. And you look at the actual reality, and there's no doubt that this effort to turn Ukraine into a NATO proxy state is suicidal for everybody. Ukraine is a very divided country. There are people inside Ukraine who absolutely hate Russia and very much want to be a part of NATO. But the problem is they're not the only people inside of Ukraine. Polls consistently show a very, very divided country. Some people want to go with the West. Some people want to go with Russia. So the answer when you have a very divided country is to simply make it neutral. Don't force it to choose sides. And unfortunately, the U.S. policy, especially since 2014 – when the U.S., as you said, back to coup, has been to try to force Ukraine into the Western NATO orbit. And it's just all the more crazy, given that Ukraine is not on U.S. borders. It's not Canada or Mexico, in which you have a plausible argument for a U.S. sphere of influence on, under the Monroe Doctrine. Ukraine is on Russia's borders. So why are we trying so hard to the point of backing coups and flooding the country with weapons to bring it into a hostile military alliance? The, the only answer... Uh, the only outcome of that is disaster, as exactly we're seeing right now. Now, um, in terms of what we're seeing now in this war, not only has Russia invaded a sovereign country, but the media coverage has depicted a, a particularly gruesome manner in which the Russians are waging this war. Uh, just yesterday, Russia's president accused Russia of carrying out genocide after Ukrainian officials said that Russian aircraft bombed a children's hospital, burying, they were burying patients in rubble in spite of a ceasefire deal for people to flee the city of Mariupol. And there was even uh, reporting that a hospital Hospital with a maternity ward was was bombed. Now, there's no excuse for any of this kind of behavior, is it? I mean, one, it, are you convinced that what we're seeing in terms of reports of things like bombing of children's hospitals is true? And two, do you join with the rest of conventional media in denouncing and decrying this? I absolutely decry the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's no excuse for invading a country that has sovereign borders, and Russia violated that with the charter. And in the process, it's killed many civilians and caused hundreds of thousands of refugees. And I understand that Russia has concerns that were completely ignored by the U.S., and those concerns were legitimate, but that doesn't, just, that doesn't justify launching an invasion. Now, it is worth noting one thing, is that all this media outcry over the atrocities by Russia and Ukraine, we have not heard them at all over the last eight years, even though there's been a war going on in Ukraine since 2014. 
after the U.S. backed a coup in 2014 and helped install a far-right coup government, the new government essentially waged war on the Russian-speaking population. First, they ban- effectively banned the Russian language inside Ukraine, which was going after millions of people. And then when Russian-speaking or ethnic Russian uh, Ukrainians in the Donbass region essentially rebelled and refused to live under a coup government who overthrew the government that they voted for, uh, the, gov- the government in Ukraine launched a war. And there's been a brutal war inside Ukraine for eight years where over 14,000 people have died. And the majority of that has been civilians on the pro-Russian side in the Donbass, in these two breakaway regions of uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk. So for these people and for millions of Ukrainians, the war didn't begin when Putin invaded. Uh, the war began eight years ago when the U.S. backed a coup, and that's just worth acknowledging. It doesn't excuse Putin invading, but it does show the reality that this war did not begin, at least for millions of Ukrainians, last week when Russia invaded. I think Russia had other options than to invade if they wanted, if their aim was to protect the besieged civilians of the Donbass. I think they had other peaceful options. So I don't think you can excuse what they did. But the media also is giving people a false picture in pretending that this war just began with Russia's invasion. At least for 14,000 people who are dead, the war began eight years ago. Now, in terms of specific allegations of atrocities by Russia, during war, I'll just caution people that it's very, very hard to, to independently evaluate these claims. And all sides put out propaganda. Ukraine puts out propaganda, and so does Russia. And so before accepting claims about uh, atrocities on faith, it's important to see independent corroboration. And I haven't seen that yet when it comes to some of these key atrocities. What is undoubtedly clear is that Russia has killed civilians, and they're forcing hundreds of thousands of people to flee. That's true. But when you get into specific allegations, I would just – not that they're false, but I would just caution accepting them before you can see independent evidence. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Aaron Mate. He's a Canadian journalist, reporter for The Gray Zone, and a contributor to Real Investigations. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, where he does a lot of great coverage and uh, a lot of great writing. Yesterday, the big story was the Pentagon um, rejecting this Polish plan to provide fighter jets to Ukraine. Evidently, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, told the Polish Minister of the of Defense that uh, the U.S. does not support the transfer of MiG-29 fighter jets to the Ukrainian Air Force at this time. What do you think of what Poland was trying to do in get fighter getting fighter jets to the Ukrainians? And do you think the Biden administration made the right decision here in not going along with it? Poland was trying to get the U.S. to put their money where their mouth is because the U.S. for the last eight years has been funneling a lot of weapons into Ukraine, while also promising NATO membership to Ukraine. So when it came down to it, after basically egging on this war, and after the U.S. basically rejected a lot of diplomatic solutions that could have prevented war, for example, Russia wanted Ukraine just to pledge neutrality. So not being in the Russia bloc, but also not being in the U.S.-led NATO bloc. The U.S. rejected that. Russia also wanted Ukraine to respect the Minsk Accords, which is the negotiated solution on record that would end the war in the Donbass for the last eight years, which simply calls for the Donbass region to be demilitarized and for Russia to withdraw its support for these for these rebels in the Donbass in exchange for the Donbass being uh, having autonomy 
uh, and um, being able to have a sway over Ukraine's future. That's a pretty fair bargain, and it makes sense for a country that is so divided. The U.S., though, has not put any pressure at all on its client in Ukraine to implement those Minsk Accords. And so the U.S. has essentially encouraged Ukraine into this conflict, as scholars like John Mearsheimer have been warning about for a long time. So the U.S. helped put Ukraine in this position while simultaneously refusing to come to its defense. So not that I want Ukraine to join NATO, but there's something incredibly um, uh, – it's craven for the U.S. to basically encourage Ukraine to join NATO and to encourage it to not make peace with Russia. And then finally, Russia responds in this harsh way to not come to its defense. And so Poland was basically calling the U.S.'s bluff and asking it to uh, sign off on delivering these uh, MiG fighter jets to Ukraine. And the U.S. said no, because the U.S. knows that if it does that, that raises the possibility of putting the U.S. in direct conflict with Russia. And it doesn't want that because it doesn't want to set up World War III. And so Ukraine has essentially been used as this pawn. And that's what's so tragic about all of this Mm. is that while claiming to defend Ukraine and care about its sovereignty, and by the way, which is such a joke when you look at the fact that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, got a gig for $80,000 per month right after the U.S. backed a coup in Ukraine in 2014. And somehow we're supposed to care about uh, we're somewhere supposed to believe that Joe Biden cares about Ukraine being sovereign and not corrupt. It's such a complete joke. So the U.S. essentially encouraged Ukraine to get into this war with Russia. And when it happened, won't come to its defense because it doesn't want to engage in, in World War III. And I, I don't want World War III, but it just speaks to the tragedy of basically using Ukrainians as cannon fodder for this fruitless quest to turn it into a NATO colony. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, You mentioned President Biden. Uh, President Biden was quick to level new sanctions against Russia, a country that already had many sanctions leveled on it. They're out of the SWIFT banking system, uh, the uh, SWIFT banking system, the number of other sanctions. And then just this week, he announced that uh, America was going to be prohibiting any import of Russian oil and gas, which means, of course, that Americans are going to be paying higher prices at the gas pump in order to hurt the Russian economy. Give me your view of uh, President Biden's decision on the sanctions in general and these energy restrictions specifically. Well, to me, Joe Biden's policies here reflect the extreme contempt that elites like him have for working people. So on the one hand, Joe Biden gets to exploit his leverage over Ukraine back when he was vice president. He was essentially the viceroy in Ukraine after the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Joe Biden was so influential that Burisma, this big energy company in Ukraine, felt compelled to hire Hunter Biden, a very troubled young man with no experience whatsoever in the energy field, for $80,000 per month just to try to curry favor with the new boss, which was Joe Biden. So Joe Biden uses and exploits his government's interference in Ukraine to help his son get a really plush gig for $80,000 per month, so over a million dollars per year. And now, you know, uh, four years later, uh, six years later, um, now Joe Biden's policies in Ukraine, essentially continuing the policies that he had when he was vice president of trying to use Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia. That leads to a war in which Ukrainians and Russians are decimated. And now he's asking average Americans to, to shoulder the cost. 
it's just such an expression of contempt for average people. And it shows the how, you know, U.S. elites play by different rules. They get to profit off of their plunder. And when the consequences happen to the point of war, it's average people who have to pay for it via their uh, higher gas prices, higher food prices and inflation. It's so sick. I have pages worth of questions that I could ask you, um, and I hope you'll come back and we can do this again maybe in a week or two. But I can't let you go without asking your opinion about what we saw this week from uh, Victoria Newland in her testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. On Tuesday, you had the um, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, actually testify before a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on Ukraine. And she said that the United States was working with Ukraine to prevent invading Russian forces from seizing biological research material. Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Now, one of the things that we had heard from uh, the administration, from everybody, uh, everybody really, is that that what the Russians were claiming, that there was a biological um, warfare facility or a biological weapons facility in Ukraine that the United States government was partnered with the Ukrainians on was just some sort of bizarre conspiracy theory with no basis in fact. Well, I mean, if you look at what Victoria Newland said yesterday, I mean, it sounds like there's at least more than a kernel of truth to this. You see, I think that's quite possible. At the same time, though, it's hard to speculate without knowing exactly what's going on. So I have to be cautious about that. But Newland certainly looked uncomfortable at the question, and it does raise questions about whether there's something we're not being told. But I can't speak to what is really going on because it would just be speculation. What I do know is that, to me, it's a scandal that Victoria Newland is allowed to continue to work in Washington and be appointed under Biden to a senior position in the U.S. government helping to run policy in Ukraine when it was Victoria Newland who— was a senior aide to Dick Cheney when he was presiding over the Iraq War. And then Victoria Nuland, who played an instrumental role in the 2014 coup in Ukraine, to the point where there's a leaked phone call. And I encourage anyone who hasn't heard it to go look it up. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it. There's a leaked phone call that was intercepted by either Ukraine or Russia, in which Victoria Nuland and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in 2014, they decide they are choosing who is going to be the new Ukrainian government after the Ukrainian government they're trying to overthrow is ousted. And they settle on a, uh, on a few candidates, and lo and behold, their choices become the new Ukrainian government. So she is <laughs> up to her ears in scandal when it comes to Ukraine. And Biden responds to that by rewarding her with a senior position, essentially running his policy on Ukraine. So it's, to- it's totally insane that she's even there in, in a position to answer questions about this. And yes, the fact that this is even a possibility that the U.S. might be backing or enabling biological warfare labs in Ukraine. And now the U.S. government today has been accusing Russia of of potentially using this allegation to carry out false flags of its own, its own biological attacks and chemical attacks in Ukraine. It speaks to how dangerous this moment it is, is. 
and thus how reckless it was for the U.S. to reject all Russian proposals to resolve this issue before the invasion, including neutrality for Ukraine, to the point where now the two top nuclear powers are trading allegations about possible false flags, and a major constituency in Washington wants a no-fly zone, which essentially would mean World War III. So we're in an incredibly dangerous moment, and it speaks to, in times like these, diplomacy to prevail and uh, uh, cool heads to prevail, not these increasingly unhinged accusations and clamor for war, which only hurts average people, whether it's in Ukraine foremost, and also average people in the U.S. too, who are paying the price at the gas pump and in the grocery stores and many other places. It really gives you, at least me, an appreciation for uh, folks like the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, who are at least trying to mediate a diplomatic solution here between Russia and the West and uh, and bring an end to this. Final question, uh, Aaron, and uh, again, I, I really do hope you'll come back, is one of the things that's also been labeled as Russian propaganda is the claim that the Ukrainian government is allied with Nazis. Uh, is that true? I mean, obviously, that would uh, strike a lot of people as odd, given that Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is Jewish. Is there any truth from what you can tell and the research you've done that there is a Nazi influence in the current Ukrainian government? Uh, there's an absolute Nazi influence in the government. Now, it doesn't mean that they dominate the government and they don't dominate society. It's a very small percentage of the population. But they do play a very outsized role. I can give a few examples. Ukraine is the only country in the world where a neo-Nazi militia is officially incorporated into the armed forces, and they're called the Azov Battalion. Anyone can look that up. Uh, and their importance to the Ukrainian military was underscored a few weeks ago when Richard Engel of NBC News, he took part in a media stunt where average Ukrainian citizens, including great-grandmothers, were being trained with weapons that they're going to be fighting in Russian invaders. Richard Engel of NBC News took part in a media stunt that was organized by the Azov Battalion. And you can see their patches. It was aired on NBC and, NBC and, and, and MSNBC. And you look up their insignia, and literally it comes from the Nazi era. That's what they come from because they're neo-Nazi. So there's no doubt that neo-Nazi militias play a, a very big role. Uh, Look at Zelensky. Yes, he is Jewish, but look at what's happened to him since he ran. He was elected on a platform of peace. He was going to make peace with Russian-backed rebels in the East. He was going to implement the Minsk Accords. What happened when he tried to do that? Uh, There's footage of him going to the Donbass and meeting with these far-right neo-Nazi militias, and they tell him to go away. And since then, there have been many public statements from far-right leaders inside Ukraine who essentially threatened to overthrow Zelensky, just like they overthrew the government in 2014 with U.S. backing, if he makes peace with Russia. You can read quotes about this up until the eve of the Russian invasion, where far-right leaders in Ukraine were saying that if Zelensky makes peace with Russia, we'll have a million people on the streets and we'll overthrow him. So I don't totally fault him for everything that's happened because he's in a very tough position where if he really implemented his campaign promises of peace, he would have paid the price not just with his job, but possibly with his life. And he's had no support from the U.S. Uh, and But regardless, it speaks undoubtedly to the influence of, of neo-Nazis inside of Ukraine. Again, it doesn't mean that they're a big percentage of the population, 
but certainly their influence is there, and nobody serious can deny that. Uh, we're going to have to end it there. Aaron Mate, I very much appreciate the time this morning, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead.